Colleen Carson. She is my grandmother, and we're going to put a picture of her on the screen. She was a farmer's wife. She loved the land. She loved her family. And more than anything, she loved the Lord. She spent a lifetime walking with the Lord. And by the time I came around, I, I remember seeing her Bible and there was more ink around the edges than there was printed on the pages. She had come to understand her identity in Christ and who he was. She came to truly understand grace. I remember her praying and it was so amazing because she prayed like someone who was talking to an old friend. In my late teens and uh, early 20s, my grandmother played a very important role in my life. I, I was getting to that stage where I couldn't receive wisdom from my parents. I was breaking away and starting to form my own identity and it's a natural part of what we do. Uh, I was also, um, well, I was smart enough to figure out I couldn't do that on my own and I needed help. So you start to seek counsel from other people. And my grandmother stepped in and sort of played that role for me. And we would talk frequently and, and she would give counsel and she also knew when not to give counsel. And through a course of several years, we became very close friends. She always did the same thing for me in every conversation was she always pointed me back to Christ. Then the cancer came back. My grandmother spent the last 40 days of her life in a hospital bed in my parents' living room. My mom is a nurse and she was taking care of her till her death. And I would come home late from school or work and it, it, would, be, it would be after midnight or after one and her bed was by the fireplace and I would go around and there was a little spotlight like this one that would... Uh, shine down on the bed and, and I would sit on the hearth and sometimes we would talk and sometimes I would just watch her sleep. And here at 22 years old, I was watching one of my best friends die a horrific death and I could not comprehend it. I could not reconcile how a woman who had served God, loved God her entire life had to die this way. And she was the one that I went to counsel for. And so I went to her one day and I said, please explain to me why God is allowing you to die this way. And she said without hesitation, I don't know, but if this is God's will, then I trust him. And I believe it serves a bigger purpose. A few days later, she passed away. Today's sermon is on suffering. You don't really want to hear a sermon on suffering, and I'll be frank, I don't want to give a sermon on suffering. We spend so much of our lives insulating ourselves from suffering, avoiding the conversation, not talking about the conversation, or when it does come, putting sort of a cliche on it, let go and let God. But there is nothing more constant in our life than suffering. You are typically either entering into a season of suffering, enduring a season of suffering, or just coming out of a season of suffering. And so I wanna take just a moment to look at this topic 
and meditate because suffering does three things that are very, very important in our lives. It makes us wrestle with the big questions of God, who he is, his justice and mercy and love and sovereignty. And then it makes us more than anything, reveals in us what we believe about God. Not what we say we believe, but what we actually believe. And then it invites us into a deeper understanding of Christ. I was speaking with a friend and mentor, Bruce Bartow, two days ago. And he said, Adam, life has gotten very simple for me. He said, every situation that comes up, I see it as an opportunity to get to know my God and get to learn to trust him deeper. For those of you that are walking with, some, uh, with someone through suffering, you may be at, uh, exiting a season of suffering and you may be walking with some other people. Suffering also allows us to see God's work in their life and allows us to be a part of that and serve. So as I go through today, there's a second conversation here for you that may not be suffering, but are able to help others going through that season. As a point of clarification, I want to talk about the types of suffering I'm not talking about today. I am not talking about the suffering that comes from our decisions. I go out, I drink, I get a DUI, I lose my car. That's cause and effect. I'm not talking about that. You can look at my life and you can see the number of bad decisions I've made. And in each of those situations, you can see God's mercy and love working through them, allowing me to suffer consequences, but also allowing and teaching me and growing me. That is not the type of suffering I'm talking about. I'm also not talking about the suffering for Christ that we see Christ mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount or Peter and Paul talk about in the New Testament. We are Bible Belt Americans in 2022. I doubt that we have truly suffered for Christ. Oh, the barista at Starbucks got my name wrong. Hashtag persecution. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about suffering without explanation or clear cause. I'm talking about that suffering that comes out of nowhere that you can't pinpoint why this is happening in your life. Why do my family members have autoimmune disease? Why do people get cancer? Why do I have friends and mentors tragically die in a car accident that has no explanation? Why suddenly does my job situation change and the job evaporates? Why are you doing this? That is what happens when we get into these seasons of unexplained suffering is we end up inevitably asking the question, why? I want to understand why. If you're hoping that I'm going to answer that question today, I, I just, spoiler alert, I am not. You don't get that answer. A lot of times we never get the answer to why. However, if you look at scripture, scripture reveals something I think so much more profound. It reveals a God who is intimately connected to our suffering because he chose to suffer with us. We always hear he chose to suffer for us. And there's a little bit different perspective here. He made a choice to come and suffer with us. The big ideal for today, you may not get the answer to why we suffer, but we do get the assurance that we do not suffer alone. So 
when we talk about suffering, what book of the Bible do we go to? Correct, Matthew, correct. Thank you for the people that I planted in the audience to do that so I could pull that joke off. It's nothing like teeing your wife up to do a joke for you so you could. Remember when we study, Job is, I would love to do 45 minutes on Job and have a conversation because it is an amazing story. Job is a story about suffering. Remember at Christ Community, when we talk about how we study the word, we talk about his story, their story, our story, my story. His story, what does it say about the nature and character of God? Their story, what is the historical context? My story and our story, how does this apply to us? What, what can we extract out for our modern world? If you look at their story, Job is about suffering. If you look at his story, Job is about the inexhaustible nature of God. It is about his sovereignty over the universe. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna skip all of Job and go right to the end and go to the part where he and Job are having their conversation because this addresses the whole concept of why. Because Job is doing what we do in suffering is he says, I want to understand why. And he demands an audience with God and God grants him one, but something happens. God does not answer him. Instead, he begins to ask his own questions of Job. In Job 38, one, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. And then he takes Job on this virtual tour of the universe. And he shows Job how he controls everything from the sunrise to the stars, to the weather, to the, to the movement, to the feeding, of, uh, feeding patterns of animals. And he basically says that his eyes, God's eyes, are on all the details of the universe that Job has never conceived. Job believed that he, from his limited perspective, could understand an unlimited God. It's like a, a grain of sand on a beach talking about the depth and majesty and size of the ocean. So Job, Job challenges God's justice and God basically says, you don't have enough information or perspective to make that challenge. Job's reaction is one of humbleness at the end in, in Job 44. He says, I am nothing. I could never find the answers. I will put my mouth over my hand, or my hand over my mouth. So the book of Job doesn't answer why we suffer. Instead, it invites us to trust God when we do encounter suffering rather than to figure out the reason. Trust God. We tend to exit the book of Job and the teachings of Job with this conclusion. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. So we should trust him. And that is not inaccurate. We should absolutely trust the Lord. It is an incomplete picture because we forget the primary part of our God. And that is that he is love. Not that he is loving, that is a characteristic and he is loving, but that he is the source of love, that he is the wellspring of love, that he is what binds the universe together, that it is his love for us. It is his love for us that dominates and permeates this universe. And that love is directed to us. And so we get to this part where he demonstrates how much he loves us. Tim Mackey is a scholar 
a Hebrew scholar who runs the Bible Project, and I would encourage you if you haven't found the Bible Project to go look at it. He said this quote, the Bible doesn't offer a short, clean answer to why God allows suffering. It does tell a story of what God has been doing about that suffering, the suffering that we brought in at the fall of man. I just wanna add that part in there. God has been working through history to raise up a deliverer through Abraham and David that leads us to Jesus his life, death, and resurrection that has opened up a new future for our suffering world. Jesus is the incarnation, the physical representation of God's love. When we see God and we see Jesus come and enter into our world, something amazing happens about the conversation of suffering. It changes from why God am I suffering to what are you going to do here? What can happen as a result of this suffering? Because we see Jesus's suffering result in many things. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna run through Matthew and I'm gonna go from Matthew 26 to Matthew 27 and we're gonna follow Jesus, his journey from the garden to the cross. Everybody else hears that, right? Okay, good. Just making sure it wasn't me. Um, When I think of the crucifixion in this story, I think of the horrific physical torture that happens at the end. But if you go all the way back and you follow Jesus through, what you see is multiple types of suffering that Jesus endures on the way to the cross. And it's here that I wanna do a couple of things. I wanna point out the type of suffering, and then I wanna just show you Jesus's reaction to the suffering. Because while we try not to be prescriptive in the Bible, we do want to pull out these things that can be applied to us and our lives and our journey through suffering. So what we see is in Matthew 26, 36, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John, and he goes to the garden and he's praying. And he tells them this, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little little further and bowed down with his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The first step of suffering is the anguish of anticipation. The anticipation of what is to come. He deals with the same anguish and uh, and anticipation that we deal with when we enter into seasons of suffering. If you look, here is Jesus, an example of fully God and fully human, dealing with the suffering. He knew why he was going to suffer. He knew his purpose. He got that answer. But you still see him experiencing the emotion that goes along with that and asking his father if there's another way. I hope this demonstrates you that the emotion in your suffering is not sin. I'm gonna say it again. The emotion that you experience in suffering is not sin. It can result in sin. I have a rock in my shoe and I'm angry about it. I take that rock out and throw it at someone, that's wrong. But the idea is that he is dealing with these emotions and he's doing what he is supposed to do. He surrenders his will to his father. 
So we see him right here in these first two sentences do those two things, two responses. The very first thing he does is he gets community around him. Now, granted, they fell asleep three times. So community, if you're surrounding people and you're coming along, people don't fall asleep. But you see Jesus go and get his community instead of isolating himself. And then he goes and he does what he's supposed to do, which is take this emotion and take all the hurt that he's already feeling and he laying it at the feet of his father and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And then he goes and he wakes the disciples back up, rouses them back up and he goes back to pray. And what you're seeing is Jesus is now starting to get more and more isolated as he begins this journey of suffering. And he prays in verse 40, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. This is the second time that he goes back to his father. How many times have you taken a source of suffering back to God and nothing has changed? God, I don't know why this is happening. I'm bringing it back to you. Change this and nothing happens. Jesus is modeling what we're supposed to do in suffering which is return the emotion back to, his, to our Father. As we move forward, we then see Jesus, um, we see Jesus goes through this cycle one more time and then Judas enters with a group of men with clubs and torches and swords. And he's prearranged a signal to the, the mob. The person that I kiss is the one that you're supposed to arrest. And in verse 49, he goes straight to Jesus and he says, greetings, rabbi, he exclaimed, and he gave him a kiss. And Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come here for. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And so the other men arrest Jesus and swords come out and Peter lops off the ear of one of the henchmen. And it's starting to turn into a violent situation and Jesus stops it. His second form of suffering is, is betrayal by a beloved friend. And when we get betrayed, what happens so often is we want to lash out in anger and you see his disciples come to his defense and there is going to be violence. There was an act of violence and Jesus stops it. He even admonishes his disciples said, I can stop this if I want it. I can call down the angels. My father will send them. But instead what he does is he heals him. And so Jesus's response is to bring peace when others lashed out. And then we move forward to verse 55 and Jesus is addressing the crowd that has come to arrest him and said, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day, but this all is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And at that point, all the disciples deserted him. It's so easy to read this story in two dimensions, like these are just characters in a fictional book. But when you look at the depth of this and you think of these men that were around Jesus that he called, that he mentored, that he loved, that he taught, who he broke bread with and ate with and laughed with, who watched him do miracles, who knew that he was the sovereign king of kings, and they ran. 
Jesus' third suffering was being abandoned. His response was to continue to speak truth. I have come to fulfill scriptures. He didn't get angry at that. So many people in this room right now are dealing with betrayal and abandonment. It may have happened years ago. A parent left a hole in the family. A spouse betrayed you and left, maybe even a child. In these moments of betrayal and abandonment, our emotion is almost always loneliness and isolation. And whenever you take betrayal and abandonment to the feet of your father, I want you to remember that when you are praying to that sovereign being, he has experienced betrayal and abandonment. He understands it because it happened to him firsthand. So then Jesus is taken before the council and this is at the high priest home. And these are the teachers of the religious law and the elders. And there's a really important uh, prepositional phrase of the people. These are the religious leaders of his community. These are the people that have arrested him. And what they're doing is they're trying to find witnesses that would lie about Jesus so they could execute him. They bring him into the house and now they're trying to get a story backfilled. And Jesus is sitting right there. And they couldn't, as you get into verse 60, they found many that would agree to give false witness to lie. They couldn't use any of the testimony. Finally, two men came before who declared, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. The fourth suffering on Jesus' journey is being falsely accused by his community. These are supposed to be men of integrity. Yet Jesus' teaching of love and grace had shook their ideologies to the point that they would bear false witness to murder him. Jesus' response was silence. He did not defend himself. When someone says something about me and it's a lie, I want to go correct it. And what Jesus did was stood in a place of understanding what was happening. And then the high priest says to him in verse 64, I demand in the name of the living God, tell me if you're the Messiah of God. Jesus replied finally, he says, you said it. And in the future, you will see the man of God seated in a place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus's response when he does speak is to only speak truth. What truth do you need to speak to yourself in suffering? Whenever I enter into seasons of suffering, the internal narrative of my mind never skews positive. It never says, well, this is great. The internal narrative of my mind goes negative and it starts to speak lies to me instead of repeating this truth. It's what Jamie prayed as she was coming off the stage. We are loved. We are heirs with Christ. There is no place that we can go and no thing that we can experience that he does not love us and that he's not going with us. Whenever you get into seasons of suffering, there only may be truth. 
And that is why it is so important to immerse yourself in the truth of the word as you're going through these seasons. Then in probably one of the biggest moments of grandstanding that we see in the Bible, the high priest tears his clothes and declares Jesus guilty. And his community then begins to spit in his face, beat him with their fist and slap him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Suffering number five is that he was publicly disrespected and was humiliated by authority figures leaders of his own community. Jesus's response was not to fight back. In our story, I would like to say this very clearly, just because there is someone that says something to you and they are a position of authority does not make it true. I hope that you press into your identity in Christ and that you understand who you are in him, what it says we are in Ephesians, because it is there that we find the truth and it then does not matter what other people say, even if they're in authority over you. So we've had Peter, if you remember, Peter is skulking about in the courtyard and we pick up Peter's story who's outside and Jesus had told him that you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows. And what happens in verse 74 is Peter is swearing for the last time that he doesn't know Jesus. A a curse on me if I'm lying, I don't know that man. And immediately the rooster crowed and suddenly Jesus's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter went away and wept bitterly. In Luke 22, we see the same story retold and they give an extra dynamic that is so important to the story is it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered what the Lord had said. We don't know how far apart they were, but at some point you can just see Jesus with all of this swirling around him, the lies and accusation, the hitting, the beating, knowing that he is going to be executed. Suffering number six is that he is denied He's denied by a man that he loves. And what is his response? Is he looks at his friend and he is still teaching him because he knows that Peter has to have the pride and hubris that he exhibited earlier in the day, has to have that broken off of him to continue on the ministry that is to come in Peter's life. And Jesus is still teaching him with just a glance He's not so distracted by his circumstances that he just doesn't look at Peter and they have that moment. And yes, it's heartbreaking, but we see the difference after Peter goes through this season of suffering because when Peter comes back, he is a different Peter. And it starts with this moment where Jesus just looks at him. People are going to betray you. People may leave you. People may lie about you and they may even deny you but your savior won't. We may not get all the answers to why we suffer, but we do get the assurance that we are not alone. Then Judas goes and because of his betrayal, he hangs himself. And Jesus is taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, and the leading priests and elders, they make their accusations there against Jesus and Jesus remains silent. 
And what we see is now the suffering continue to crescendo. And now it has gone from his community to the ruling authority. And suffering number seven is that he's handed over to the ruling of government and he's falsely accused. And this ruling government knows that they can stop this, but they don't. Jesus' response is to continue forward. To add insult to this, we get to the Passover custom of the governor, which is to release a criminal. And the governor knows that these religious leaders have brought Jesus to him out of envy. So what he does is he brings Barabbas up, who's a known criminal, a terrible person by all uh, accounts. There's no way they're going to pick this guy. And he says, okay, you can pick Jesus or you can pick Barabbas. And the elders and and the the religious leaders get the, the crowd all whipped up and they choose Barabbas. And then we get into uh, verse 23 and Pilate says, why? What crime has Jesus committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that the riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And the people yelled back, we will take the responsibility for his death. We and our children. Suffering number eight is that he was found guilty in the court of popular opinion and that Rome, the ultimate authority, could have stopped it and served justice, and they did not. And on top of that is the insult that they picked a known killer over him. These were his people that roared for him to be crucified. These were his people that he administered to that he had healed, that he had loved, that he served as an example to. Jesus' response was that he gave no defense. And even when his, with his, was in his power, he did not fast forward the process. He did not stop the timeline. He did not avoid the suffering or the humiliation. So Pilate releases Barabbas and he orders Jesus to be flogged and sent to crucified. And suffering number nine is the physical pain of what he now must endure. He's flogged. And what do we see Jesus do? Endure. Then we see the soldiers, the Roman soldiers take, and in verse 27, we see him stripped, mocked, put a crown of thorns on his head, struck in the head, And suffering 10 continues this humiliation and physical beating. He was made to be a a puppet king for the amusement of his oppressors. Jesus' response, he endured. Then we get to the crucifixion and he is sent and he's carrying his cross. And what we see is a picture of our savior who physically cannot make it to the end of his season of suffering. And the Romans pull Simon out of the crowd and say, carry his cross. And there's just a small detail, but it's very important to our story. Community helped Jesus get to the end of his suffering. They got him to Golgotha. When we are in seasons of suffering, and people come alongside to help, if you're there to help others in their suffering, 
words typically aren't the thing to do. It's getting in there and picking up that cross and walking with them. So Jesus goes and he is nailed to the cross and the soldiers gamble for his clothes and people pass him and mock him. And in verse 40, it says, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then if you remember in Luke 23, one of the criminals that is being executed next to Jesus, he asks for mercy and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Suffering number 11 is that he is crucified and he is mocked while being crucified, verbally abused. And what do we see Jesus do? Give mercy. Jesus then in verse 50 cries out again and with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. One commentator described the journey to the cross for Jesus this way. You cannot write a more tragic story. It is impossible. Why? It is the story of the aggregation of everything people are afraid of. There is no death more painful than crucifixion. That is why the Romans invented it. It was uh, an extraordinarily painful death. It was a slow agonizing death by suffocation, dehydration and exposure. Plus you know it's coming. Plus your best friend betrayed you into it. Plus your people turned against you. Plus they are led by a tyrant who doubts truth. Plus you're a victim of the Roman empire. Plus you're completely innocent. Plus everybody knows it. Plus they chose a criminal to be released from this experience, even though they knew that he was a criminal and you were innocent. In the matter of just a few days, Jesus experiences 11 types of suffering. And I'm gonna show you just real quick those 11 in his response one last time. The first one is anticipation of the anguish. And what he does is his response is he experiences the emotion fully. He connects with community. He prays for relief and he processes the emotion before God submitting his will to his father. He's betrayed, and instead of acting out in anger and violence, he stops violence and he brings peace. He's abandoned. He continues forward even though he knows, because he knows that his heavenly father is with him. He's falsely accused. He remains silent and he points back to truth. He is beat and humiliated by the authorities, but he knows who his identity is. He is denied by Peter, and yet he's still teaching Peter. He's taken before the government but he understands who the real authority is. He is found guilty in the court of popular opinion when he should have been found innocent and they picked a guilty man over him. He did not defend himself. He did not stop it. He did not get angry. He was flogged and he endured. He was stripped, mocked, spat upon and tortured and he endured. He was crucified and mocked yet one more time and he gave mercy. The creator of the universe, who was fully God and fully human, loved you so much that he suffered with you. We may not get to the answer why we suffer, but we get to the assurance that we are not alone. As I wrap up today, I want to tell you one last story. Two years ago, I had four separate health issues collide. 
And Summer and I didn't know what was going on. It was probably one of the toughest seasons of suffering that I've endured. It was tough on Summer and it was tough on me. And I will tell you the pride and hubris in my own heart. I truly believed because I saw my grandmother that whenever I finally got to my season of suffering that I was gonna look awesome. That my faith was gonna be, you know, it was gonna soar and I was gonna look great. I was not, I did not look great. It was terrible. And through this season of suffering, what was revealed is even though these situations were manageable, the Lord used this situation to reveal my pride and my ego. He used it to reveal the facades that I had built up to protect that image. He revealed my control and my lack of trust in him. I had built a quid pro quo relationship with God. I live a good life and I do good things and I get a good easy life, right? God said, I'm gonna teach you something different. It was during this season that uh, Summer and I were with Mike and Nan sitting in the backyard. They were going through a, a real season of suffering. And Nan asked two questions. And the first question was, can I speak into this? Oh, if you're helping someone through a season of suffering, please ask that question. Because a lot of times they can't take words, they can't hear anything just yet. Ask, can I speak into it? And I said, yes. And she asked me this question. We had already come to the end of the season. And she said, are you thankful for the journey yet? And I said, no, with some additional words. I was not happy. I wasn't thankful for that season. I didn't even see the benefit. I had just survived it. And Nan looked me right in the eyes and said, you will be. Suffering is not a theoretical exercise. It is a soul redefining reality. The closest thing we may get to why we suffer is just coming to peace with the question. So instead of wrestling with the why, can we take a different journey? Can we invite the Holy Spirit into the suffering and live with the mystery intention? Can we wrestle with God, his omnipotence, his justice and mercy, his sovereignty and his love? And then can we surrender our will in that process? I want you to know as I, I prepared for this, I've actually been preparing this for this for 10 months. There was a picture of a person in my head as I wrote the entire sermon of a woman that was in a season of suffering that looked like there was no end. And I believe she came today wanting God to just specifically say that I am present with you in your suffering. Please understand that the presence of suffering does not mean the absence of God. And for that person, understand that he sees you, he has heard you, and he's with you right now. In the suffering, it is when we seek our father the most. 
we seek him the most earnestly. It is in the suffering that the idols and ideologies that we've built get stripped away. It is in the suffering that we're transformed. It is in the suffering that we find a creator who knows all, sees all, and holds this universe together, but chose to enter in and suffer with us. The incarnation of love. Will the worship team please come up? So here is your response for today. If you are in a season of suffering, I encourage you to do number one, pray. If you don't have the words to pray, pray liturgy. When I was going through my season of suffering, I was so mad at God, I wouldn't even bring it to him. No prayer. You get no prayer from me because he was real disappointed about that. You get nothing. I'm mad at you. And when I finally went back to pray, I didn't have any words. And I remembered the liturgy and I was given this book and I'm dealing with control. I'll just put it out in front of my community. I wanted to control every detail of what was happening. I couldn't even control my own body. And this is the liturgy that I went to. It's the liturgy for first waking. When I get up in the morning, the very first thing that I read was this. I am not the captain of my own destiny, nor even of this new day. And so I renounce anew all claim to my life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. And I read that every day that entire liturgy every day, every week, every month, because I had no more words that I could pray for my own. And then it opened up and the prayer returned and the words returned and I was being taught and I was sitting at my father's feet doing number two, which is bringing the emotions before God. Um, I'm an external processor. And so I like to bring my emotions before my wife and I'll just wear her out. Some of you are like, yeah, they do that too. You are supposed to take your emotions before your father and you can be as raw and angry. You can bring it all there. He's not scared of any bit of it. Sometimes we sit before God in some pious thing as others are watching. Do what my grandmother did. Sit down and talk to your friend and let the emotion out. He will meet you there, I promise. And then do what we see the example of Christ did. He submitted his will. Is there another way, God? But not my will, yours be done. Father, I want this suffering to end, but I will continue to walk because I know you're with me and I trust you. And this is how we start to get to the next one, which is moving past the why and to the what. Because all of a sudden in the midst of the suffering, it became clear that maybe it was more than just the suffering that was happening in my life. Maybe it had to do with some things that God could do through the suffering. Things are getting stripped away. Oh, oh, there's purpose here. And so start looking for the what. And then lean into your community. That's what we're here for. 
That's what we're built for. It's not just a good little word on a piece of paper that we call a core value at CCC. Community is what we are supposed to be as the body of Christ. So often we get into these seasons and we go into isolation. And so often we, we're embarrassed. We don't want people to see us weak and vulnerable. That is the time that you need to reach out. And community, that is the time that we need to come around them. And not just them, but the family that's surrounding them. And if I can give you three pieces of advice that sum up how to help people in seasons of suffering, it is to show up, shut up, and pick up the cross. And then endure. What do we see Jesus do time and time again? He kept putting one step, one foot in front of the next and moving forward, enduring, going forward, because we know these three things about suffering. You can trust God and his love. You're getting to know him and you're getting to understand his love in a real way. We know that the season will end. In Job, we see Job restored because of God's mercy. In Jesus, we see him die, thus restoring all of humanity. The story and suffering ends one way or another. Your story and your season of suffering will end. And as my friend Nan said, you will be thankful for the journey. If you're not right now, you will be. You may not get to the answer to why we suffer, but you do get the assurance that we are not alone. You are not alone.